0: If you're able, um, stand as we read God's Word together, Um, Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Um, If you don't have a Bible, um, we provide Bibles in the seats in front of you, and we very strongly encourage you uh, to follow along. This text begins on 814.
1: And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, and if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah
0: than for that town. Amen. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... uh, your holy and timeless word, um, we thank you that, that even the, the texts that, that seem a little, bit, um, a little bit far removed from us um, have, have very great relevance to us, um, teach us something uh, very beautiful um, about who you are um, and beautiful about who you have called us to be in this world. Uh, Lord, we know that in this world uh, there, is, there is much um, sadness and grief, uh, there is much turmoil, um, and pain and suffering, um, Lord, we we pray specifically for our our brothers and sisters in, in Nashville um, this morning, Pastor Chad Scruggs and and his family. Lord, as he shepherds his people there, um, while also um, feeling the feeling the weight of 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 this darkness and the reality of of sin in the world. And so, Lord, we pray uh, for for those brothers and sisters at Covenant Presbyterian um, and that congregation there. Uh, Lord, that you would bring great comfort, and um, Lord, we also know that there's there is a, just a level of comfort that we, as your people here in Oklahoma City, need. Um, Lord, in, in this in this room um, is representative of of many joys, uh, many many struggles, um, and so Lord, I pray that you would you would comfort um, and that you would um, use us as as your body um, to to comfort one another, to love one another, to to bear the burdens of one another. And so we, we thank you for our time here, and uh, we pray that your word would, would bring us great comfort and great confidence, um, that though there are many troubles in this world, um, that you have overcome the world, um, and that we, through uh, what Christ has done for us, um, have also overcome, in your name, amen. Amen, you may have a seat. So here we are, picking back up in Matthew chapter 10. I don't know about you, but it doesn't really feel like a Palm Sunday text. Um, does it? It uh, doesn't really feel like a Palm Sunday text. It's actually kind of been a little bit of a habit of ours um, over the years um, to, to, to not, you know, just like go swing for the fences on, on Easter. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but growing up, like that was swing for the fence Sunday. Um, and so the, the great thing about the resurrection of Jesus and the gathering of God's people is that every week we celebrate <laughs> the resurrection. Um, and, and we make it a, a very clear point every single Sunday. Um, to, to make a point of the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, which is part of what we do in our proclamation, but also what we do in our practice of coming to the table. Um, I hope that you see the Lord's, the Lord's table as a reminder every single Sunday of the death and the re- resurrection of Jesus. Um, speaking of Easter, what we also may have made a habit of is to never give anyone a hard time um, that we have not seen since last Easter, um, Okay. <laughs> So, uh, so, so, you know, the joke about the CEO Christians, right? Christmas, Christmas and Easter only Christians. Uh, we don't, we don't we, I know I just made a joke about it, but we really don't joke about it. Uh, because here's, here's the deal. I think that those churches that, that really make people feel uncomfortable, um, really what they don't realize is that the indictment is a lot on them. Um, how well have they served and reached out to those who we haven't seen? And so it's a challenge even for us as a body um, if you don't see someone, um, pastors have that responsibility, but we really all share that responsibility. Um, if you don't see someone for an extended period of time, um, it's it's not an opportunity for us to chide them um, or to make anyone feel unwelcome, uh, but to say, man, I'm really glad that you're here today. You, you're in the right place. And so um, as we prepare for next week, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to worship together Um, After the service, you know, all sorts of people feel all sorts of different ways. We feel okay about Easter eggs Uh, because we've got children here, and they love candy, okay? And we'll have all the kids in the service with us. Easter eggs is a great incentive for them to just calm down a little bit. Um, There's Easter eggs coming. And so uh, following the service next week, we'll go out into the field and scatter some eggs, and the kids will pick up eggs and have candy, and it'll be a a, a wonderful time. So... um, that's just a little bit of uh, in preparation for next week. Um, more, the most important thing um, is that really, like today, uh, we, we worship a, a risen Savior. Um, I mean, he's, he's alive. Uh, God raised Jesus from the dead. And uh, for that, we are, are eternally grateful. Through that, we are saved. Um, through that, we come together as a people. So um, as we kind of wade into Matthew chapter 10, um, really looking forward to being in Matthew chapter 10. We need a, a, a quick overview of Matthew, okay? Very quick overview of Matthew. Um, remember that the foundational claim of uh, and, and of the purpose of Matthew is that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the, that's the, the very first words in Matthew, and that's the foundational. Uh, Claim of the purpose of Matthew. That's why he writes this, is to show that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham, meaning that Matthew's gospel as an account is intended to reinforce that Jesus is the one who had been promised by God for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of years. Uh, that, that, that Jesus is that one that God promised. And it's, it's believed that the main audience of this gospel account. Um, And the main purpose is to reinforce confidence in those who were Jewish Christians. And so that that's kind of what's believed to be the audience of this book. Those who sometime after the death and the resurrection of Christ, maybe a couple decades later, that Matthew's writing this book to a group of Jewish converts, those who were Jews who became Christians, and, and maybe not only Jewish converts, but maybe just those who would have been very familiar with the Jewish faith. And so that could have also been Gentiles. And so it's, Possibly a mixed congregation, but G- but Matthew is saying, "Hey, this Jesus is the one who the Jews expected for a very long time." And so, for the purpose of understanding today's text, Matthew chapter ten, verses one through fifteen, it's important for us to be aware that this gospel was written decades after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so, if if we if haven't caught that yet, we need to be certain that we know. Um, that this isn't like a, a play-by-play account of Matthew. Um, he's he's not writing this down as things go. No, he's writing this a couple of decades, likely after the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so by this time, by the time that Matthew comes out, you know, like this was like we go to the movie theaters to see to see like uh, back in the day. It was like when's the next big letter coming out? When's the next gospel coming? And so um, when when when. Uh, but by this time, uh, it, it's very likely that Pentecost had already happened, Acts chapter 2. Um, it's, it's likely that Paul had been converted by the time that Matthew writes and, and, and distributes this. Um, and, it's, and it's likely that several of Paul's letters may also have been already been written. Um, and so Matthew is kind of inserting his gospel narrative into the mix of the letters that are circulating. It's well after the life of Jesus. And, and most importantly... Not only had Pentecost happened and Paul been likely converted and the letters likely started being circulated, uh, more importantly, the gospel was well spread and on its way into the nations. The gospel was, was out there, just as God intended for it to be all along. And so the impact of the gospel by this time that Matthew is writing was clearly observable. Like the the people were believing the gospel, people were trusting in Christ, they were submitting themselves to him and following him. And so understanding this, I tell you this, because understanding this will help us understand and rightly interpret what today's text is all about. You'll often hear us, in fact, last week we kind of used this language, you'll often hear us use language in, in regards to the scriptures of prescriptive and descriptive. You'll hear prescriptive and descriptive language. Prescriptive refers to those parts of the scriptures um, that, that seem to prescribe a way of following Jesus or a way of life that God has written in his word that is to be obeyed and, and understood for all people at all times. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the other parts are irrelevant. We're just saying there are prescriptive texts and there are descriptive texts. Descriptive texts describe maybe what was going on and don't normally have any immediate response um, that we are called to make. Um, Take the miracles, for example. Um, If the miracles are prescriptive, then how are we doing, church fam? (laughs) Probably not very good. Now do we believe in miracles? Yes, I'll just say that right here. Maybe you're like, okay, today's been weird. Yes, we believe in miracles. Um, and, and we'll say that very, very confidently. But the miracles, for example, um, the, the accounts of the miracles of Jesus aren't written prescriptively such that we are now to go out and do the same thing. Rather, they are descriptive of the ministry of Jesus and the application that we take away is that we have a, Savior, who is sufficient and authoritative and capable and worthy of our trust. Remember, we talked about that over and over with the miracles. Hey, if we, if we believe that this is how Jesus acts all the time in response to our questions for healing and our, and our, and our desire for healing, then we will be crushed. If we take um, this text as prescriptive as to what we ought to do, then we will go into despair because we think, well, obviously I'm not honoring God and I must not have enough faith or else I would be healing people. Uh, that's, that's not how those things work. And so these miracles are rather descriptive rather than prescriptive. And so what we also have to acknowledge in the descriptive-prescriptive conversation um, is that we are limited, amen? We are limited people. We cannot always rely on ourselves to distinguish between descriptive and prescriptive. And so maybe you're like, well, how do we know it's descriptive and prescriptive? Well, I think that there are things that are consistently taught throughout Scripture, um, and, and that the, there, are, there are many of those things in which we may be confident they are prescriptive of how God expects his people to live. And so if, if we see a text and we say, okay, how does this fit with the whole counsel of God? Are, are there other places where this is commanded? Are there other places where this is instructed? Are there clear commands from, from all the, the writers of the Bible Um, that give us some sort of ice thick enough to hold us um, that we would say this is likely a prescriptive command. And so the Sermon on the Mount, some people wanna say, well, that's just for a future time. I would say the the Sermon on the Mount is not a a teaching that saves us. It's evidence that the Sermon Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is saying, hey, this is what people, this is what life within my kingdom is all about. And there are other places all throughout scripture That command us the very same things that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, Um, and so I I think that um, there are things consistently taught throughout Scripture that we may be confident and uh, that that are prescriptive in how God expects His people to live. And here's here's a quick caution on this, okay? Because I know some of you, I know I know some of our like approaches to Scripture and and some of our the way that we're wired by by a good Creator. But here's a caution: we don't approach the scriptures as Sherlock Holmes. We, we, don't, we don't approach the scripture as Sherlock Holmes merely seeking out the bare minimum of what I'm supposed to obey. That happens a lot. All right, what's the bare minimum I must do in order for God to love me? Well, first of all, God's love for you has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what Christ has done. And because of what Christ has done in you, we are now enabled to obey him and to follow him and to follow him joyfully and and lovingly submit to his will for our lives. And so we don't don't do anything in order to be loved by God. We trust in what Jesus has done so that God has now accepted us. And so we approach the scriptures always as Christians. I just need to say this because, listen, you, you may not understand it, but What I'm about to say is the thing that we've not done and is the reason why the culture is in some of the place that it is. Um, What we do is we approach the scriptures submissively. We approach with a submissive approach, a submissive mindset, not setting ourselves up as lords over the text, but as those under the Lord of the text, and so that's how we approach the scriptures, not as it's Sherlock Holmes. Um, now, does the scriptures check out? Absolutely. Um, just from a just from a very logical standpoint, um, the scriptures hold up. Uh, they've they've been around for thousands and thousands of years, and despite all the attacks that have been attempted, man, it's still it's still rocking, baby. It's still rocking and rolling. And so the scriptures hold up. Test them out. Try them out. See what see see how they hold up. But what we do as people of God is we come to the text and we submit ourselves to it. And we say, Lord, whatever you would have of me, may, you, may your spirit enable me. May, may you give me more grace to follow, to trust, and to obey you as you have called me to. And so understanding all of these things will help us understand this particular portion of scripture. So the text before us is a text about a specific mission of Jesus and his commissioning of 12 disciples to fulfill that mission, okay? You see what I'm saying there? There's a, there's a specific mission that Jesus has, um, has his disciples set out on. Namely, that mission is to take the gospel to the Jews. Now, if you were to read this text, in some ways that this text has been read... I was trying to figure out what to say there. The way the text has been read by many is that Jesus is only concerned with the Jews. That Jesus is only concerned with getting the gospel to the Jews. Now, it would appear, the way that the text says, that that's what he's saying, but that would be to take out everything that we know that we've been talking about that leads up to this point. Here's what we know about after spending a year and a half in Matthew. All kinds of people up to this point have responded in faith to Jesus, right? All kinds of people. In fact, Jesus has healed, he has raised, he has exercised and forgiven non-Jewish people over and over and over again. And so when Jesus says, go only to the Jews, or later when he says, I have come only to the the, 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 the house of the lost sheep of Israel, what we must do in those moments is use our brains. One of my seminary professors said, just use your brain. Just, just use your brain. Jesus is saying something there, and in no way is he contradicting, but he is saying something that is not exclusive to the other things that Jesus came to do. What, what Matthew tells us from chapter one, by the way, is that Gentiles are part of the family tree of Jesus. When you read the family tree, you know that boring family tree that everybody just always skips over? Hey, there's some gold in there. There's some gold in that family tree. In that family tree are Gentiles. Not only that, but Gentile women. Like, like at two strikes in, in culture um, in, in, in the Bible, but Gentiles come and they worship the newborn Jesus. The wise men, those guys aren't Jews. They're, they're, they're from the Orient, likely, and they're, they're coming from outside the, the covenant people of God to worship Jesus, So we see that Jesus does have a specific mission to the Jewish people. He says it very clearly here. But nowhere do we see that it is to the exclusion of those who are not Jews, broadly speaking. It's never to the exclusion of that. Because again, we see all the way through the beginning of the scripture that there's Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. Gentiles coming to faith. And Jesus is even saying to Gentiles, I have not found such a great faith in all of Israel than in you right here and you're a Gentile. And so here's what we need to know. If you've taken the perspectives class, we've, Brian and Victoria are, are working towards, uh, be, uh, are becoming coordinators for the perspectives course and several people have taken perspectives. What, what, what I learned there, one of the, the good things that I learned in that class was that the mission of God has always and forever been that all nations would bow before him and worship him from, from, the, from the get-go. And so Adam was a vehicle to that end. Abraham was a vehicle to that end, that my name would be known throughout all nations. Hey, Israel was a vehicle to that end, that all the nations would know God and worship him. And church, we are a vehicle to that end, that the nations would know, love, worship, and honor Christ. And so we have said this before. God has given his church a mission uh, God has not given his church a mission. Rather, he has given his mission a church. Does that make sense? He's not just said, well, um, I, I've got a church. Now what, do I, what, now what do I need to do with them? I've got this church. I've got these people. Now, now, now what, you know, I, I, I'm just going to think of something. What should I do? Okay, it will be this. No, what he has said is, no, my, my desire is that all peoples from all walks of life would know, love, worship, honor me. I'm going to give that mission a people. And he's always worked that way. He's worked that way from the very beginning. And so what we have here in Matthew 10, I believe what we have in Matthew 10, is descriptive of the mission of Jesus to the Jews. Let's let's look right here um, to the first uh, four verses. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction, The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Jesus sets up over this mission to the Jewish people that he's sending out. He sets up over this mission 12 men. Now, um, I don't know if that, rings any bells to you, especially when it has to do with call, God calling himself, calling to himself a people to make his name known throughout the world. The word, does the number 12 strike any familiarity with you? The 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus sets up over this mission that he is getting the gospel to the nations, he sets up 12 men. By the way, there are all sorts of really meaningful implications and reflections in this that we necessarily won't get into today. But what we, I think something very interesting and significant here is that one of those things is that Jesus sets up these 12 men in such a way that would have sparked those reading and witnessing all of this 12 there's 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus now sets up these 12 men who will, who will serve as the foundation of the new covenant people of God, and he gives them their first mission, take the gospel to the Jews. Now, what is said about these 12 men, notice what is said about these 12 men, or rather, really what's not said. None of them are of noble status. You see that? In fact, um, Matthew, seem, Matthew wants us to make sure Judas, yeah, he's the guy that betrayed. He's the the betrayer in in this. And in fact, um, none of them were of noble status. In fact, Matthew, the author, look what he says about himself. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew doesn't like try to, what what do you call that, embellish anything? Doesn't try to make something sound better than it exaggerate? Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Is that the right word? Sugarcoat? Or exaggerate. He's not trying to exaggerate who he is. Matthew could have been like, yeah, Matthew, yeah, let me tell you about that guy. He, he turned out to be pretty great. No, Matthew, what he, what he is sure to include is that, no, Matthew was that tax collector. That one who, again, if we understand that a Jewish audience is reading this, it's kind of a vulnerable spot for him, right? Because I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, like, not all of my prejudices against people went away, right? <laughs> like I still had to struggle with, like, oh yeah, like like growing. I, I was asking my boys earlier this week, "Hey, what is a bad person and what is a good person?" We went on a walk. With, I went on a walk with my boys. Uh, what are bad? So growing up, bad people smoked cigarettes, um, and and they said bad words. Those those were the bad people. Um, and so I just was wanted to ask my boys. who... How am I raising them? Um, Who are the bad people? And they they didn't answer. So maybe they, I don't remember if they answered. They didn't. They didn't answer the way that I, that I would have answered, essentially. And so, who knows? Matthew could have been in a very vulnerable spot with all these Jewish people. They were like, Yeah, I still have a really hard time that used to be a tax. I still struggle with that row. I still can't, I know Jesus forgave me and I know that Jesus called us to forgive, but like, I still, sh- you worked for them? You did You did that? You did, you did what? Matthew is sure to make sure that these people know. Now, he, all he was was a, was a tax collector. And I think what, what Matthew wants us to know is that these are the men that Jesus has chosen to serve as those who will take this gospel message to the nations. And he doesn't use those who are noble. God says that, by the way, um, to the Israelites in Exodus. They didn't choose you because you were more noble or because you were stronger than all the other nations, but no, because I set my love on you. And I think we see that principle here, that Jesus has chosen 12 who are not noble of noble birth, but because he called them. And then we see, after those, those, those men are listed, we see the charge that they're given, or, or what we call the job description. Let's read the job description. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, "'Go nowhere among the Gentiles "'and enter no town of the Samaritans, "'but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel "'and proclaim as you go, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven is at hand. "'Heal the sick, raise the dead, "'cleanse lepers, cast out demons. "'You received without paying, give without pay.'" "'Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, "'no bag for your journey or two tunics, "'or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. "'And whatever town or village you enter, "'find out who is worthy in it "'and stay there until you depart. "'As you enter the house, greet it. "'And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. "'But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. "'And if anyone will not receive you "'or listen to your words, "'shake off the dust from your feet "'when you leave that house or town.'" Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. I think what we see here is that the purpose of the miracles, we see those miracles, you see what Jesus instructed those people to do. Now, if this is a prescriptive text, if this is a text that we view prescriptively, then we think, all right, that's my job. Um, I'll, I'll say real quick, this isn't the only commission and it's not the last commission that Jesus gives to his followers. Um, in, in about 18 chapters, which I think Marissa figured up for us, so it should be in about five years when we get to Matthew 28. Um, when we get to Matthew 28, we'll see that Jesus gives another commission, and and I, I'm not I, I don't want to state overly definitively here, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make any kind of harsh statement, but that commission that Jesus gives us doesn't include any of these. So what that tells us is at least at least now. At most, it's like none of those things ever happen anywhere ever again. Maybe that's one position that people take. But what it at least means is that in this text, that the healing and the cleansing and the exercising and the, and the, the raising the dead served a very important purpose. Jesus gave them this authority and this ability to, to, to fulfill a specific purpose, and we're going to look at what that purpose is. The purpose of the miracles and the, and, and the disciples' authority to perform them, I believe, is to serve as a grace and a sign to the Jews to trust that Jesus is the one who would come. So when, when Jesus says, do these things, the, the reason why he's giving them the, them the authority and the power to do it is as a grace towards them, that the Jews would see these things and not that those things would become an end in and, of, in and of themselves, but that they would become a means by which they would place their trust in Christ as the coming Messiah. And so Jesus is sending these people out to do this. So, so this particular text is not intended or set up for us prescriptively to prescriptively apply to ourselves today. Now, if you wanna have a conversation about the gifts, those things that we do see in 1 Corinthians, then, then we might go to 1 Corinthians for that. Um, what I have seen oftentimes is pastors take this text and say, here's what Jesus did in this text. The same spirit of Jesus lives in you. Now you go do the same thing because it's the same same commission, same everything. I believe that this text, we're just talking about this text here, okay? I believe that this text is intended um, to fulfill a very specific mission that Jesus is giving his people. And so the miracles listed here and the authority given are very specific to these 12s to these 12 men and are intended to accomplish the thing that Jesus is sending them to do, and that's to take the gospel to the Jews, that, the, that, that these things would serve as a sign to the Jews that this is the guy who would come. So we see that Jesus has the desire to see those who are the covenant people of God, the Jews, to, to trust that he is the Messiah. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the fulfillment of all your longings, all your hope, all of the promises, and all of the promises of God that they believed in as a people, Corinthians says, they have, all those promises have found their yes in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm the yes. The promises of God, the covenants of God, Paul will later say, have all found their yes in Christ. Christ is saying, I am the great fulfillment of your longing and of all things that you could be hopeful for. So Jesus says in verse 15, look what he says in verse 15. Um, let's read read that one more time. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Hey, real quick, did somebody see somebody walk up? Are they still there? Okay. Just just checking in. Let, let's see what uh what what's uh Chapter 10, verse 15 says, uh, we we just read that, that on that day, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who refuse to trust and believe in Christ as the Messiah. Now, we know the devastation that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You remember that story in the Old Testament? We know about the the devastation. Um, The world knows about, by the way, the world knows about, even those who are not of the faith you say Sodom and Gomorrah, like we know things didn't turn out well for them, right? And and, and what Jesus is saying here is that, that this hard-hearted, stiff-necked, disobedient, wicked people, that it will be more bearable on that final day of judgment for them than for those who refuse to believe the message that the, that the disciples are carrying to them. And that's a heavy statement, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but Sometimes I have, a, I have a problem comparing myself to other people. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah really isn't one of those places that I have a hard time not comparing myself to. I don't know about you, uh, but Sodom and Gomorrah, I, I feel, I feel pretty, pretty good about myself when I weigh myself up against them. Jude chapter seven, turn with me to Jude, the book of Jude. If you turn too fast, you'll miss it. Jude verse seven, look what this says. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, what Jude seven tells us is, is what it tells about Sodom and Gomorrah, it does not only tell us about the immediate sin and, and destruction on the earth of Sodom and Gomorrah, it goes on to say that, no, they, they are part of an eternal fire now. There's an eternal fire. And so maybe we thought of Sodom and Gomorrah, like, whatever happened to those guys? Well, Jude 7 tells us what happened to those guys. They are eternally separated from a holy God. If, if, if you're not comfortable with the doctrine of hell, um, you, you, we might say some things that make you uncomfortable, and not only that, Jesus might say some things that will make us uncomfortable. But what Jesus says and what Jude says is that Sodom and Gomorrah not only was just destroyed, but they are part of an eternal fire separated from God. And so again, the Bible not only speaks of the sin and destruction, but their place in eternity. These two cities, as wicked as they were, as wicked as they were, they never had, what I believe, they never had the tangible, declared proof of the Messiah and the gospel that these Jews were sharing that, um, sharing that day. So Jesus is, saying that, Jesus is saying that there will be a particular weight and a particular gravity to those who have heard the gospel, have seen the Savior, yet have rejected him and remain in unbelief. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is like their, their, their minds will be very aware of what they heard but never trusted. Um, one, one way that I've heard this put is that you will be account, held accountable for what you know. And what Romans 1 will tell us is even if the gospel hasn't been declared to you, that creation cries that there's a creator and that no man is without excuse. And so in the end, when we stand before God, you will be accountable for what you know. And what Jesus is saying here is that in that day, people are going to realize we heard this. Man, can you imagine that moment for a second? Imagine you've passed from this life into the next, into eternity, And what you may have not fully known or believed here, you know with clarity there. And you also know where you're headed. And what Jesus says is that there's gonna be, essentially, Cliff Notes version, essentially there's going to be a moment that you stand before your God and that you have heard the gospel and yet have not believed the gospel it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that person because you have clearly heard the gospel. You have clearly seen the Savior. It has been before you. The gospel has been proclaimed. And in that day, that will be a tough day. So to the Jews, this would have been a shocking claim. They would have in no way put themselves in the category with these two cities, much less in a worse place off than them, right? Right? Jews would have known about Solomon and Gomorrah, and they would, again, like, like I often feel, they would have felt really good about themselves. At least we're not as bad as those guys. And Jesus is like, yeah, there's a day coming where if you don't believe, that day will be worse than what they experienced. And so this may not be a prescriptive text for all of us all the way through, but we will understand this text rightly if we recognize the places where the application is universal and eternal. And so let me just give you five quick um, applications that apply to us today. I'm just going to read them. Jesus has all authority, and all authority is given by Him. That's what we see in this text. Jesus um, commissions these twelve because He has authority. Can we just say something? Any authority that anyone has in all the world is derived authority. What that means is its authority has been given to them. Men, in your home, you've been given authority by God. You don't inherently hold authority. Um, your authority is derived from the all-authoritative God. Now, you have a very deep level of authority there in your home and in your marriage, but all authority has been given by God. It's all derived other than the authority that God has. No one gave him authority. No one gave permission to God to have authority. No, Jesus says that all authority has been given to him And Jesus now has all authority, and He gives us authority now in these places. And so we can see in Matthew 28, there's a different mission, but it's the same Lord. Um, The second thing, the second application that we see, we might, we may not have the same project as the apostles in this text, but we have the same mission, and that's to proclaim the gospel. That's prescriptive, okay. Um, that That is a prescriptive component of this text, that we would declare the gospel to anyone and everyone. The third thing that we see that's prescriptive and universal is Jesus calls and uses weak and unshiny vessels to carry his message. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad for that? Hey, dads, aren't you glad that even though some days you don't feel like a great dad, you are still the vessel that God has put in that house to love and to nurture and to and to share the gospel with that family. Man, I know very deeply the reality of, of, of my weakness. The fourth thing um, that uh, that this tells us is that the implicate the gospel implications of this are have eternal weight. Have eternal weight. This is not the only place that Jesus talks about hell. It's not the only place that the Bible talks about hell. Jude talks about hell. There are lots of discussions about hell. And so the implications of these applications are eternal. And then fifthly, what is universal and eternal is that we must respond in faith to Christ or be separated from him forever. And Jesus is just gonna kind of pick up this language. This, is, this isn't the, this isn't, we're not gonna get all the healing Jesus here. He's gonna continue to heal, but he's gonna say some things that are very hard. And there are things that we can draw from this. Again, that Jesus has authority, that we have the same mission to proclaim the gospel, that Jesus uses weak and unshiny vessels to carry his message. The implications of these things are eternal and we must respond in faith to him or be separated from him forever. Church family, we have, we we are, I hope that we feel every week the profound weight and reality of our salvation. I, I hope so. I hope that it's not something that's just part of you, but it's who you are is that you are a child of God. This is, this is who I am. And we have a, a great reason to rejoice because we have a risen Savior, one who reigns and one who has given us peace with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Um, we thank you for what you have done for us um, through your son, Jesus. Um, we thank you that you have um, placed the gospel before us today, um, that 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 we are we are sinners, um, and that we need a savior. And so, Lord, we uh, we we take that opportunity to to worship you, uh, to to call out in, in gratitude, to respond in worship. Um, and Lord, we also um, take the seriousness of this message, the weight of this message, to a to a world who doesn't know you, to to a world that is lost. Um, and headed to a to an eternity separated from you, and so we take the we take the um, we take the seriousness of this message, um, and we share it with others because we know uh, from what place we have been saved, and we know to whom we have been saved, to whom we've been united, and so we pray, Lord, that you would uh, just help us in these ways um, to understand and to worship you in in grateful uh, response. Praise things in your son's name, amen.